Can you all hear me? This is not the formal part of the program, okay? We're going to just let you guys and gals from SEED, if you have any questions that you want to ask about now, we can do that rather than just talk, okay? We have about 10 or 15 minutes. I have laryngitis, as you can tell. So you're going to have to help me by not talking when I talk. Is that okay, yeah. guys, gals? Okay? There are folks and friends here who aren't from Seed School who've come to the Pratt Library to hear this lecture, which will take place in 15 minutes, after they hear from my best friend over there, Professor Gibson. Um, uh, but, and Larry, if you want to come over, you can grab a mic too. If you guys and gals from SEED, and again, there'll still be more people coming over the next few minutes, but if you want to ask some questions about anything, I, visit, I don't know if you remember my visit with a lot of you, what was it, a year and a half ago? Okay. How many were there when I was there? Any of you? Okay. And we talked about people who succeed in life. Remember that? And we talked about how preparation made a difference in them succeeding in life. Right? And you all are being pretty well prepared, I guess. So what do you want to talk about? Anything at all? Anything at all? And not to each other. I've got the enforcer up here. Come here, Ryan. Ryan's the enforcer, okay? So, does anybody have any questions about any subjects at all? Well, go ahead, sir, you start. It takes a, a brave person to start. Go ahead, let me get you a microphone that you can pass back and talk to. Stand up, stand up. Oh, oh excuse me. Stand up. Um, um, why did you decide to write this book? Why did I decide to write a book? Well, this book, okay? I'm going to talk about the book when we do the program, but I'll give you a little preview, okay? I decided to write the book because whenever I find anything that is challenging, either in my life, or in the life of other people, I think it's good to kind of look into how to meet that challenge. And the point of what I'm going to talk about tonight when we start the formal program is what the challenge was with this book. And I'll, I'll also talk to you a little bit about the other books. But that's why I write a book for the same reason that you go to school. I both want to learn and then I want other people to learn from what I learned. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. So that's, that's why I wrote it, but I'll be more specific when we get to the lecture. Anybody else have a question? I'll pass that. You guys, here, we'll let this young lady, and then we'll pass it around to you. What, what did you major in? Go ahead. What did you major in? Say What did you major in? What did I major in? That's one I won't talk about in the lecture, but I majored in history. And why did I major in history? I majored in history because I believe we can learn from what happened before we were here. And I wanted to learn from the experiences of other people and how they did things, how they did things right 
and how they did things wrong. Sort of ties in with writing a book again, okay? And I thought that history would be a great teacher and something that I could learn from and then maybe learn from our mistakes and learn from our successes and carry it forward. Also, I'm fascinated with how people lived at different times. And so history really was exciting to me. It was like going to the movies, okay? I saw some other hands. Who else has hands? And for those of you who have come to hear about perfecting your pitch, I'm coming back. I'm coming back. Go ahead. You go ahead, sir. Stand up and ask it. Um, I came to ask you, what college did you go to? What college did I? You know, when I was out at seed school, and for those of you who don't know who all these kids are, these are the amazing kids of seed school. And, 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 and when, when, you, when you go home tonight, put Seed School in, your, in, you know, in Google. And Seed School. Uh, <laughs> I've also told people, I've got laryngitis. You've got to help me. Okay? It's Seed School of Maryland. And when I went to your school, because the question was, what college did I go to, right? Is that what you asked me? I saw all over your school the names of colleges, right? Sort of to encourage you to find a place that would work for you. I went to a little college that you probably never heard of outside of Philadelphia. And it's called Haverford College. Real small. When I went, when I went to Haverford College, it was smaller than seed school is. That's how small it was. Now it's bigger. When I went to Haverford College, it was all boys. Now it's boys and girls. So, you know, times change. I'm old, okay? But Haverford College was a, a fun place for me, and I learned a lot, and then I went on to Harvard Law School, okay? Are you a Republican? <laughs> I, I, that, why do you ask that question? I'm, what? He said, guys and girls, guys and girls, does anybody know what the word stereotype means? His, this is not the lecture yet. We're just talking, okay? You've got to be quiet. I told you I can't talk. He said, are you a Republican? And I said, why did you say that? He said, because you got a red tie on. If you, came up, if you came up close, you'd see there's a lot of blue dots in the tie. Okay? So I can say this to you. I am not a Republican, but what I am is my business. Okay? But what I want you to learn... What I, want, what I want you to learn is don't look at someone and say because they look a certain way or dress a certain way that they are a certain way. Got it? Good point? Okay. So, here you go. Here you go. Take, take the mic. We'll, we'll get started in about eight minutes. Eight minutes. Go ahead. Question. Um, 
I'd like to can I have some respect, please. I'd like to ask, um, how long did it take you to write the book? That's a good question. And again, <laughs> it took it took from the time I decided to write it. Now let me tell you, when you write a book or when you do a project or you do something in life, you might think about it for a long time, right? But from the time I stopped thinking and I started doing, it took about six or eight months to write the book. And then when you finish writing the book, you give it to the editor. And then they give it back to you. And so I would say it took the better part of 10 months to get the book started and completed. Okay? Make sense? Who else? Who else? For those of you just come, yes. Oh. What will the name of your next book be? What will the name of my next book be? Again, I'm trying to stay away from books till the seminar starts, till the presentation starts. But the next book will be The Power of Nice Revised. The first book I ever wrote was The Power of Nice, and it was written back in the mid-90s. That book is being revised, and I'll talk about that a little bit later. I saw a young man over here. Go ahead. Uh when you um, first started writing a book, did, uh, um, did, you, did you ever like come across like writer's block, like a whole lot? Oh, man. When you ever write a paper at school, do you ever have writer's block? Anybody here have that problem? I want you to know when you write those papers at school, it's just like someone writing a book. Larry Gibson over there wrote a book on Thurgood Marshall. Professor Gibson, come here. Come here. Come over here. Come over. Larry, when you wrote that book about Thurgood Marshall, did you ever have a point where you wondered whether you could go on? Yes. <laughs> you write lots of books. Actually, artistically, I'm mainly a photographer. So, yes, many, many times uh, I wondered, well, does this really have to be a book? Maybe I should do a website. Or, and I thought it thinking of various uh, shortcuts. But I'm glad uh, I finished it. And uh, uh, But there were many, many times when I or my wife Diane <laughs> suggested, you sure you want to do this? Yes, without a doubt. And that's a man who knows how to write and teach. I'll tell you more about him in a few minutes. Any other questions? Because we're going to start in six minutes. You guys are getting free questions before we start. Here you are, sir. Go ahead. Um, I would like to ask you, when you first wrote your book, were you famous, like, off the back, or was you, like, I mean, like, famous? Let's, let's, let's talk about, uh, you raise a question. Yeah. Oh, um, when you, when you wrote your book, was you famous, like, when you, when you came out with your book, did people notice it off the back, or did you have to, like, tell people to read it? Okay. okay. Let's make clear that sometimes, many times, not famous people write books, okay? So when you write a book or you do something, you have to spread the word about the book, okay? And if a book is written the right way, what happens is you try to get the opportunity to talk about it on radio, on television, to reporters, to groups. You go around and you speak to clubs and organizations. 
Larry, how many places did you speak on, on Thurgood Marshall? So far about 122. 122. So nobody would have known, or very few people would have known, that the book was out there until Larry went out and campaigned for that book. And each one of the books that I've written have been, you have to campaign, you have to make people aware, you have to make people aware of what the challenges are that the book meets. And then you hope that they like it enough to want to buy the book. Does that make sense? Any other questions? Yes, young lady. Um, what type of people did you like observe? And Say, speak loudly. What type of people did you observe to write your books and to make them more up to date with, like, to connect on, you know, a more international that's a great question. When you write the book, what kind of people did we connect with or I connect with in order to write it? If you look, the kids from Seed School all have a copy of the book. And if you look in the table of contents, you'll see stories about kids. You'll see stories about successful business people. You'll see stories about couples. You'll see stories about families. You'll see So the answer is... I tried to write a book about all kinds of people from all walks of life and the challenges that they face in given situations. So the table of contents will sort of go, and you'll read stories in there, and every one of them is a real person. In most cases, I change the names to protect the innocent, as they say. But there are real stories about real people from all walks of life including students. Yes, sir, I'll come back to you, and then I think we're close to starting time. Who had his hand up back here? Excuse me. Shh. Seed school, show people how you can keep it. Go ahead. Um, can you tell the students um, what do you have on um, laryngitis? I have. I have. Doctor, you, you diagnosed me well. I have laryngitis, okay? Laryngitis is when your larynx, which is part of the box that helps you talk down here, gets infected either by a virus or by a bacteria, and it, it gets so infected that it's hard to make sound, okay? Thank God for a microphone. And yesterday I spoke at a school and there was no microphone. That was a challenge. But that's what happens when you have laryngitis. So don't offer to go out speaking when you have laryngitis, okay? You kids down there, I'll, I'll give you last two, uh, last three right here, okay? You first, go ahead. Um, what kind of trials and tribulations did you have to go through while writing your book? <laughs> trials and tribulations? There were no, the, the only trials and tribulations are the trials and tribulations that you go through when you write a paper. Disciplining myself to sit at my computer, to put my thoughts down, and then being willing to look at them and revise them to make them better. But I enjoy writing. I enjoy sketching. And those are hobbies. And so it wasn't such a trial and tribulation. And I had to, I want to tell you kids from Keith Seed School one other thing. When I went to law school, I did not know how to write. And I took a course in law school. And the reason why I didn't know how to write was I, I missed a lot of classes in high school. I didn't learn the basics of writing. 
And I took a program in law school called remedial writing. You know what that is? That's where you have to go outside the program and you have to work at night with tutors and you have to write papers and let them scribble all over it and let them tell you how poorly you write. And they would give me back the papers and the papers would have more red ink on them than they would things I typed on. But I learned. And that remedial writing program, once I opened myself up to that, and I thought about all kinds of things in life that we don't know how to do, was a turning point. Because I learned that I could speak to people, but I couldn't write to people. And then I could write to people, and it opened all kinds of doors. So I want you to remember, a lot of us are at a disadvantage at one point or another. But if you find that remedial thing that you can embrace, it can take you to the next level. Does that make sense? Okay. I said two more and then we'll start. Okay. Go ahead, young lady. Um, did you have a role model when writing any of your books? I, I don't know if I had a role model in writing my books, but I had lots of role models in life. But no, I, I, I you know, I, I wish I could say I had a role model, okay? But I did not. I, all I wanted to do was to do it. And I think part of it was because I was so bad at it when I was a kid, that I wanted to play catch up. Maybe I wanted to prove a point when I wrote the first book. But I also did it for all the other reasons we talked about, which was I learned a lot, and I wanted to share what I learned with other people. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. I saw one more hand, him. and him. Okay, him. What's, what's him's name? Erwin. Erwin? Go ahead, Erwin. Okay. Go ahead. Turn around. How did you feel when you got your book published? How did I feel when I got my book published? I'll just say I felt good, which is a great place to give it to the lady in charge of all books in the whole world. And let me tell you, let me tell you, Carla. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the person who makes this library system work. Carla Aiden. Well, thank you. Wow. Now, see, that's what's called perfecting your pitch. And I need you, Ron, to do that and introduce me every time. But welcome, everyone. And I, would, I really want to thank the Seed School and all of the people that brought you here. This is what it's all about, and we just thank you. So give yourselves a hand, because that's – you guys are great. And – you just had one of the best seminars that you could probably get. So you, you really are getting it. Because tonight, this is one of our special Writers Live series. And there are people that are coming in now at 7 to hear our special guest, Mr. Ron Shapiro. You can clap again. Because, and the one reason why I really want you to do it, this event has been several months in the making. We originally scheduled him last December, December 10th to be exact, and because of inclement weather, we had to reschedule. And I tell you, we were a little nervous today when we heard about the tornado warnings and things like that. But we're so grateful that Mother Nature has decided to cooperate. Now... You may not, and he may not have told you that when you, when you just asked, um, how did you feel when your book was published? Ask him how he felt when he won the silver in the sales category for the 
2014 Axiom Business Book Awards. <laughs> so, we know you're eager to hear from him, and I just have a slight commercial, our pitch, that we have a few more um, author events coming up. All of them are available, of course, in the Compass and online, prattlibrary.org. But two, I wanted to mention um, award-winning author Meg Woolitzer on April 2nd, and at the annual City Lit Festival, National Book Award winner James McBride on April 12th. Now, to introduce our guest tonight is another wonderful author. It's also his best friend. Now, his book, Young Thurgood, is the first book to explore, and it was authorized. And for biographies, having an authorized biography means a lot, about Justice Thurgood Marshall. And it has been critically acclaimed. It sold thousands of copies already, and he had the book launch right here at the Pratt Library. So, you know, he's on the faculty of the University of Maryland School of Law for 40 years. Think about that, 40 years. So please welcome our good friend, and of course Ron's professor, Larry Gibson. Thank you, Thank you, thank you, uh, Dr. Hayden. Uh, my purpose was to introduce uh, to you Iran Shapiro, but uh, most of you have already uh, uh, met uh, Iran, um, and uh, but I still want to tell uh, you all a few things um, uh, about uh, about him. Uh, Ron Shapiro negotiates. He teaches. He helps, and he writes. He does lots of things, but those are the four I'm going to talk briefly about this afternoon or this evening. Ron negotiates on behalf of his clients, on behalf of his friends, on behalf of organizations, most of which are charitable organizations, and really on behalf of anything that he believes to be right. And he has a special uh, style of uh, negotiating, essentially seeking to find a common ground. Uh, he describes this style in his, uh, in his books, and it, uh, it works. Um, Ron has uh, negotiated many types of contracts, multi-million dollar uh, contracts and agreements. He has uh, settled uh, through his negotiating uh, disputes, uh, such as uh, there was one between the, uh, the, the symphony uh, orchestra and, and, and management. And uh, he has forged out of many contentious situations uh, productive uh, relationships. Ron uh, founded uh, some businesses, uh, successful firms that uh, have been the vehicles for uh, his uh, uh, multiple types uh, of work. Uh, there is this law firm, Shapiro, Cher, Gano, and uh, Sandler, that has been uh, repeatedly recognized as one of the best business law firms in the state. There is Shapiro, Robinson, and Associates, 
that represents uh, a lot of different types of people, but mainly athletes. Uh, uh, his uh, firm, that firm, Shapiro, Robinson and Associates, is consistently regarded as one of the most highly respected uh, sports agencies in the nation. Ron also teaches. Over the years, he has taught many courses in schools, in colleges, and in universities. He's conducted a wide range of, of seminars for managers and employers of businesses and leaders of institutions, nonprofit organizations. Uh, he has uh, taught leaders and people in more than half of the 50 states of the United States. Uh, many of his clients are uh, national uh, uh, entities. Uh, he created and heads the Shapiro Negotiations Institute, which produces uh, seminars and conferences and lectures uh, uh, about how to succeed in this uh, a competitive uh, world uh, while being nice in accomplishing it. Internationally, Ron Shapiro's uh, seminars have been conducted on every continent in the world except Antarctica. Uh, what a loss for the penguins. Ron's teaching also reaches the individual level. He has guided the careers of a variety of athletes and political uh, figures, uh, business leaders, uh, ordinary uh, uh, citizens, uh, and uh, but also he spends a lot of time with young people. There are scores of Ron Shapiro uh, interns and Ron Shapiro uh, uh, alumni, people that he uh, has uh, uh, mentored uh, through the years. And so that's why I, I know he is sincere when he uh, indicates uh, how delighted he's ha to have you uh, from the Seed uh, School uh, here. He's talked about his time uh, uh, with the Seed School, and he's really absolutely, genuinely delighted that you're here this evening. Ron Shapiro helps. He helps people and organizations with advice, with planning, uh, with fundraising, with personnel uh, training, uh, team building, crisis management. He has chaired the governing body of more than 25 charitable and community organizations. He has raised millions of dollars for good causes. In philanthropy, fundraising for good causes in Maryland, uh, his name is he, a household name. Uh, and Ron has done this worldwide. Uh, uh, one of his uh, major uh, leadership was that of, uh, of the International uh, Athletes Organization, um, uh, Peace uh, Players uh, International. His current project, by the way, is raising money to renovate the uh, firehouses in the Baltimore uh, city, the kitchens. He learned that the firefighters spend hours and hours there and that many of the firehouses have really 
poor uh, cooking and eating facilities. And so he's going around, uh, contacting one company after another, raising money to renovate these firehouses. And each renovation of each one uh, is about $20,000. And uh, he's, uh, that's his current uh, project. Ron Shapiro literally lives by uh, a, a, uh, his motto. Uh, actually, I think it was the motto was coined by uh, William Churchill, but but he speaks it often and lives it, and it goes: We make a living by what uh, we get; we make a life by what we give. That's Ron Shapiro. Finally, Ron Shapiro writes: Ron has this God-given innate insight into human nature. Uh, he his ability to to understand people and uh, interpersonal uh, relationships is really downright uh, uncanny uh, and fortunate for us and fortunate for the world. Ron shares this special uh, wisdom and insight through the uh, books that he authors. Uh, today we uh, commemorate Ron's uh, fourth book. I love the titles of his books. The earlier three books are, you see the covers uh, here, The Power of Nice, How to Negotiate So Everybody Wins, Especially You. The Power of Nice, How to Negotiate So Everybody Wins, Especially too, You. The next book, Bullies, Tyrants, and Impossible People. How to Beat Them Without Joining Them. Ron's third book, Dare to Prepare, How to Win Before You Begin. These books have been bestsellers. They appear in seven languages. Tonight, uh, Ron is going to talk about his next book, and I like the title of that. Perfecting Your Pitch, How to Succeed in Business and in Life by Finding Words that Work. Perfecting Your Pitch, How to Succeed in Business and in Life by Finding Words that Work. And one last bit of information that has already been mentioned, but it's something of which I'm exceedingly proud is that since 1967, that's 47 years, Ron Shapiro has been my best friend. So I guess, I guess it also means we're old. <laughs> and so it is my pleasure to present to you a negotiator, a teacher, a philanthropist and author, and my friend, Ronald M. Shapiro. So uh, the message that Larry just delivered was, if you want to hear your eulogy before, before your funeral, ask your best friend to talk about you. <laughs> well... Let's talk about these books, because that's why we're here this evening. And I, I first, for those of you who ha have not been here 
for the last half hour. These wonderful young people up here are all from the Seed School. And it's an amazing school, and they're an amazing bunch of young people. And they asked some good questions earlier this evening. And one of the questions they asked was, you know, what causes you to write these books? And I want to spend one minute before I talk about perfecting your pitch just to kind of give you a quick review. You know, the, the power of nice was the beginning of it all. I'm, I'm writing a revision of that book now. It was way back in the mid-1990s when I wanted to make the point that we can deal with each other, even though we come from opposing points of view, and find a middle ground that allows us to resolve a conflict and move forward with a relationship. We can get along. The second book was because people would say to me, well, what happens if the people we deal with aren't nice? What do we do then? Well, I figured I'd give them a roadmap to dealing with those difficult people, bullies, tyrants, and impossible people. And there's a system in there. The third book was about what I say is the real difference maker. And I, I look at these students, but I look at everybody in the room. And the real difference maker for all of us is if you're going to outprepare them, you've really got a chance to outperform them. Don't worry about they have more. Don't worry about that they seem to be more talented or have more resources. You prepare and you're going to level that playing field. Got it? All of these books are built on the idea of a systematic approach. They're not just motivational thoughts. You go into the books and you find a simple system that you can use and embrace and therefore achieve the goals of the books. Tonight we're going to talk about that system in this book. And, and, and why? One of the kids said to me, one of you all from seed school said, why did I write this book? And I wrote it because in life we have challenging communications, whether we're speaking them or signing them, as you and I discussed. We have challenging communications. And how often in life do we find ourselves facing situations like this? you got to ask for a raise. You want to find out what's up after a job interview. You want to tell a friend not to text and drive. You want to get someone to work on your timetable. You want to settle a family financial squabble. You want to break up with a boyfriend or a girlfriend. You want to overcome customer objections. You want to get a friend or, or a child who doesn't want to listen to listen. Do those things happen in our lives? And I, I could put up a list of many others. There's 40 different in the book. How often have you been faced with a challenge like that and said, I know what to say. I know how I'm going to handle this. And you go in and you speak words and you go, oh, my heavens. Wow. Why did I say that? Have you ever had that experience? Have you ever had the experience where it just didn't come out right? Does it happen? It happens. So I thought about my life early in my life as a sports agent. That's one of the things I did, working for people like Cal Ripken, if you've ever heard of him. I would negotiate contracts. And I knew a basic rule of negotiations from one of my earlier books was, and we'll use a number now because the numbers are crazy in the sports world. If you want to get $1 million, 
whether it's in a sports contract or a contribution or a building fund, whatever it may be, there's a basic concept. You have to ask for more, a reasonable amount more, but let's say a million two hundred and fifty thousand. Does everybody understand that? Got it? Well, I was a negotiator and I knew that intellectually that's what I had to do. So I said to myself, I don't have to do anything special. I'll just wing it, you know, and I would go in and I would say to the other side, listen, we can do this deal. We can make a deal for a million two hundred and fifty thousand dollars and not a penny less than a million. What just happened, ladies and gentlemen? What, what is the deal now? It's already down to 800,000, okay? The point is, because of fear, because we don't want people to think we're greedy, because of emotions, because we want people to like us, it doesn't come out right. And we back off, and that happens in all kinds of things that we do. So I started to think early in my career, there's gotta be a better way to do this so that when we have a challenging communication, we can say it right. And I came up with this concept. Script before you engage. Not a difficult, difficult concept. Script before you engage in a crucial conversation. And in about 10 minutes, I'll tell you about one of those simple systems, the system for scripting, which I write about in the book. But write it out, get it down, know what you're gonna say. Build comfort and confidence by scripting. Does that make sense? So through the years, as, as Larry said, I've been lucky enough to coach and mentor all kinds of people. Here's a young man. Let me tell you about him. He started in Baltimore. He grew up in this area. He worked as a salesman in various places and became a salesman at television stations. And today, he's one of Hollywood's top executives. He produces films and TV shows. His name is Steve Mosco. And I mentor him and I taught him and his group at Sony Pictures. I taught them how to script, okay? One day he calls me on a Saturday morning and you all asked me when I would write this book. It would be frequently on Saturdays. And he says to me, what are you doing today? And I said, matter of fact, I'm writing a book. And I'm writing about how I negotiated a $184 million contract for a player named Joe Maurer and how I scripted to succeed in that contract. He said, scripting? That's amazing. He said, stop, let me tell you a story. And I said, what is it? He said, did you read the New York Times on Sunday? And I said, no, Steve, I missed it. Was there another story about you? And he said, matter of fact, there was. And he said, the story was about how he had just won a competition with Google and Yahoo and Warner Brothers and Columbia Pictures. And the competition was for a new digital television show called Comedians in the Car Getting Coffee. You ever hear of Seinfeld? It was his new show. And so he, he said, Ron, you know what I did to win it? The competition was intense. He said, I, I was ready. I, I wrote it out on pads. I scripted a million different ways. And boy, when I had my team came in and they read what I did and they revised it. But when I got in with Jerry in his office, I was ready because I scripted it out. Not a movie script, just little bullet points on a pad that he put in his head. And he practiced 
so that when he went into Jerry, he sold Jerry and won the day. This is the same man who produces Breaking Bad. This is the same man who produces Wheel of Fortune, the same man who produces all kinds of shows and movies, uh, Gifted Hands about Ben Carr, all kinds of productions. This is, this is Steve Mosco. But then I have other friends, and this guy that you see now is a man who has won more NBA championships for you people who like sports than anyone else as president and general manager of the San Antonio Spurs. His name is R.C. Buford. Now let me tell you what his challenge is. His challenge is that like a small company, he couldn't keep up with the big guys with all the money in New York. His team was in San Antonio. And he had great players, and he had to convince those players to take less money, take less money, in order to stay in San Antonio rather than flee with all the free agents for the big dollars to keep a championship team together. And he succeeded. And RC will tell you it was all about his preparation, the power of nice, and scripting. And, you know, the agents would come in, guys like me, and they'd push them around and they'd say, you got to give us more. And he would stay focused because he, he was prepared. He knew what his message was. And he delivered it effectively, not only to the agent, but to the player. And, you know, he's another scripting disciple. Okay, two examples, but I want to make an admission. Not everybody I go to, you see this guy? He didn't believe me. Absolutely blank. <laughs> Not everybody I go to says, yes, I will script. And let me tell you a story about a man who was a university CEO, a president. And what happens in the world of universities today, particularly in the world of athletics, is, I don't know whether you read much about this, they change conferences. You know, they go from the SEC to the ACC, from the ACC to the big, they jump around. And this president decided the best thing for his university was to make a change. And he engaged in an intricate negotiation and convinced the commissioner of the conference that he was going to go to that his university ought to be there. And he worked it all out and he was ready to celebrate. And he went to his board of trustees. And when he went to them, they said, that's terrific. But you missed one thing. And he said, what did I miss? He said, you missed about $25 million. We need $25 million to cover our costs to make this work. He said, $25 million? I didn't ask for that. I can't go back. Someone gave him my card and said, call Ron. And so I and my partner, Michael Moss, who's in the room, met with him and his team for a whole day, and we taught them negotiation skills, all the ways you negotiate. And we said, you know, don't believe it's over till it's over. You can go back. You can make a presentation. But one of the things at the end of the day, after all this preparation, you're going to have to do is you are going to have to ask him for $30 million to get $25 million. Not an unreasonable figure. We'll give you a basis. Notice we didn't say ask for $100 million, but something in that range. He said, I got it. Boy, you're teaching me all about negotiations. We said, wait, there's one more thing you have to do. You have to script it out. 
You have to put it down so you learn it, so you can speak it confidently when you go in there. And he looked across at us and he said, script it out. He said, I'm a visionary. I'm charismatic. I'm brilliant. He didn't quite say this, but this is what the body language was. I don't have to script. And we tried to convince him and we couldn't convince him. So we said, okay, go and give it a try. He said, I, I know I can do it. Just leave it. I, I do it all the time. When I give speeches, I don't even write it out. So we went into the next room, and his team was in one room in a hotel. They were in the next, and they could hear what was going on. And he made this great impassioned plea. And in the end, when it came time to make the ask, he said, I'll tell you what. We can do this deal. It's going to take 30, at least $25 million to do the deal. Well, he came back into the room with his team, and they all looked at him, and they knew that something didn't go right from what they heard, but they said, how did it go? And you know what he said? I nailed it. I did it. It was great. Because that's how you feel when you think you do it right. The only problem was 10 minutes later, the phone rang, and he picked it up, and he went, hmm, oh, yeah. And on the other end, the commissioner was saying, we can really do this deal with you. We can give you $20 million loan. Loan. He needed new money. He needed $25 million. He looked around and he turned to the group and he said, wow, why did I say that? Why didn't I say it right? So he looked to Michael and me and he said, you know, I guess I blew it and it's over. And we, we don't ever believe it's over till it's really over. And we said, look, we think we can help you put something together that you can take back to them, and you may be able to keep this alive. He said, what? He, we said, are you willing to script it out? He said, scripting? I love scripting. Let's do it. And so he scripted it out. And it was a script about, we understand that you can't do the deal with us, but we've loved meeting with you. We'd like to help you in the future. We'd like to work with your conference if we ever can. But, you know, we're here. But look, I just do want you to know, if we, we could have done this deal, and the only way we can do this deal is if you give us an outright grant of $30 million, or no, there couldn't be a deal. He was shocked because the commissioner said, hey, I'll call you. <laughs> they, I'll call you. And Michael and I were in the office the next morning, and we got an email from the president, and it said, mission accomplished, $25 million of new money. What did he learn? What did he learn? To script, and he also learned the importance of the words of a president named Harry Truman, who said, it's what you learn after you know it all that really counts. That applies to older folks. That applies to students. That applies to People like Larry and me, it applies to all of us. We're always learning. We can always be better. Got it? Now, did that president get a second chance? He did. He got a second chance. Do you always get a second chance when you say it wrong? No. In fact, can I show you some examples of people who didn't get a second chance? There was the young man, and this came out of the newspaper, who was asked what he liked, and he said... I like cooking my family and my pets. He's a cannibal. <laughs> well, 
That's not what he meant, is it? What he meant was, if somebody had looked at it, if he had scripted out, he could have used commas, and it would be, I like cooking, I like my family, and I like pets. Got it? A word misplaced word. How many of you use Facebook or use any of the social media? How often have you sent a piece of social media or an email or a tweet and wish you could have gotten it back? Okay? How many? Okay. Let me show you. And there's a chapter... There's a chapter in the book on social media. Take a look at this situation. The young lady is named Dana Snay, and she took to Facebook after her father won a big settlement. And her father, in the settlement agreement, he was discharged as the head of a school, and he alleged age discrimination and some other things, and the school settled with him for a nice settlement. Immediately, Dana got to Facebook, and she wrote, Mom and Papa Snay won the case against Gulliver. Gulliver is now officially paying for my vacation to Europe this summer. Suck it. <laughs> well, people do that, don't they? People do it, don't they? You know what happened? It cost $80,000, the entire settlement. The court said Snay violated the agreement. His daughter did what she shouldn't do. She broke the confidentiality. She advertised in the school community what the whole, con the whole deal was about. And that was the end of the settlement. How often, how often do we wish we could have taken things back? How would scripting and the system we're going to show you, where you bring someone else in it with you, how would that make a difference? I write emails sometimes. And I'll give them to Michael, or I'll give them to my wife, Kathy, and they'll look and say, do you really want to say that? And that opportunity to script it right saves me from the potential problems. Let's go somewhere else. Anybody ever here see this show, Modern, Modern Family? One night on Modern Family, one night on Modern Family, Phil Dunphy wanted to endorse his wife for a political position in their county. And I want you to see the speech he gave for her. Excuse me. Stand by. I am Phil Dunphy, and I am not a pervert. I, like a lot of men in this town, enjoy making love to my wife. I mean, um, I mean with their wives. Not me, them. Well, he regretted that. But presidents of the United States frequently regret what they do. And I want to show that young man who asked me which party I was in. This is nonpartisan. I want to present Presidents Bush and Obama, who may have wished they had perfected their pitch. Take a look at this. We got an issue in America. Too many good docs are getting out of business. Too many OBGYNs aren't able to practice their, their love with women all across this country. Our enemies are innovative and resourceful, and so are we. They never stop thinking about new ways to harm our country and our people, and neither do we. On this Memorial Day, as our nation honors its unbroken line of fallen heroes, and I see many of them in, in the audience here. Too. 
So, so you see, so you see, laryngitis, remember. So you see, even presidents of the United States wish that they might have perfected their pitch a little bit more. You want to hear an interesting story? Which president of the United States in recent memory, maybe before some of you were born, was called the great communicator? Anybody know? Ronald Reagan. Now, Ronald Reagan, Ronald Reagan was never called the most brilliant of presidents, but he was the great communicator, and I discovered something in researching him. Whenever he had a crucial situation to negotiate, whether it be walking in the woods in Reykjavik, Iceland, when he talked to Mikhail Gorbachev and ended the Cold War, which then existed with Russia, whether it be negotiating with the Democrats, whatever it may be, he always had scripts. He always had little cards like this. And those cards were in his pocket. Now, he had a tendency to repeat himself because he stuck with his script, but he didn't want to make a mistake in the zone of the point he had to make in carrying out the duties of his presidency. It's interesting, I tried to get another slide up here today, and this relates to you kids particularly. Kathy and I have a grandson who's nine years old named Brennan, and I have a slide of a script he did, which looks exactly like this, crossouts written like this. But he had a challenge, and you guys can relate to this. He goes to a public school in Boston. They have no money to repair the schoolyards. And his job, as many kids in his class, were to go out and raise money so that the schoolyard could be repaired. And so he called us on the phone, and he made conversation with us, and then he talked about the schoolyard, and then he said he could give us the website to contribute. It was just flawless. We were just amazed. And he said, well, do you think you can support our program? And I said to his father subsequently, how did he do that? And he said, well, you know, he had a script. And it looked just like that card. The interesting thing is that at the top of the card, he said, before you ask him for anything, make conversation. <laughs> and that's what he did. But the point I want to make, this isn't just for presidents, and this just isn't for lawyers or agents or adults. This is for everybody. Got it? Okay. So the question now is, how can, what can I leave you with before we go to questions so that you can script more effectively? What does the book teach? It teaches a simple, systematic approach, which I call the three Ds. Draft, devil's advocate, and deliver. Watch how it works, okay? You got something tough to say to someone. You get out a, 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 a computer, or you get out a pen, you get out whatever it may be, and you write everything down you want to say. I had a young man come to my office He's in college or graduated from college, and he had to go back to his high school and speak to a, some fundraising group to inspire them. And he said, wow, why did I do that? I hate to speak in public. It's tough to speak in public, isn't it? Yeah. So Michael and I said, just write everything down you want to say. Just write it all down. Anything you think, don't worry how it sounds. Don't worry that you're ultimately going to say it. <clears throat> write it all down. President Abraham Lincoln when he got emotional because he had 
terrible generals at the beginning of the Civil War. He'd just write it all down. And then he'd take the letter that he would have given to them and he'd put it in his desk. Like you write an email you never send and you put it in drafts or you put it in trash. But he got it out, his emotions. He got it all down. So the first step is draft. Got it? Anything you want to say. Then, before you do anything, that young girl who wrote that Facebook page didn't do it, find a devil's advocate. We can all get better by having someone look over our shoulder at what we're going to say. Because they'll look at it without the emotion. They'll look at it with how it's going to affect other people. Devil's advocate. The young man who had to give that speech, Michael and I said, move this around, do this, try this. What do you think of this? Why are you saying this? He learned as he prepared for his speech. There's someone else I have to tell you about. President John Adams, before he was president, in 1775 and 1776, was charged with convincing the 13 diverse colonies of America, slave states, non-slave states, maritime, industrial, border states, all kinds of interests, 13 different interests. He had to convince them that they should be the United States of America. So if you saw the movie John Adams on HBO or read the book by David McCullough, he would sit there at night with a quill pen and a candle burning. He'd write down what he would say to the Congress. But when he finished, he went to his devil's advocate. Who was his devil's advocate? His wife, Abigail Adams. So I frequently say to people, who's your Abigail Adams? That's my Abigail Adams over there, my wife, Kathy. Stand up, Kathy. And that's my Abigail Adams in the office over there, Michael Moss. So I embarrass both of them. But I want you to know that I, I would be in real trouble for having said things that I might have regretted, like the snake girl, had I not had my Abigail Adams. And do you know what? Abigail Adams did such a good job with John Adams that we celebrated July 4th, 1776. He convinced the Congress it was an imperfect nation, and it still is, has its imperfections. But he convinced the Congress that we should come together. And that was the beginning of this country. And the third step is deliver. Deliver is practice. Practice what you're going to say. That young man came to our office and we said, stand up and tell us what you're going to say now. We knew that it was right, but he practiced it until he got comfortable. And I'm not telling you that a script is word for word. It can be bullet points. It can be a few thoughts like Reagan had down. But the more you practice, you become comfortable, don't you? And the more you're comfortable, you become confident. So delivering that hard message becomes easier. And the other side hears you, and you tend not to be weak. You tend to feel strong. You tend to feel encouraged. And you go, and you make an effective communication in a challenging situation. Do you all have the three Ds? Every one of us, not just these students from the seed school, every one of us in this room, every one of us in this room has the opportunity to succeed or increase the likelihood of success in challenging communications 
if we practice these three Ds. And I want to emphasize again, it doesn't only apply to business. It applies to every aspect of our life. Now I'll finally embarrass another person in the room. That is my assistant and our niece, and her name is Kim. And that is her on her wedding day. But there's a, there's a 3D story to this, okay? That is on her wedding day at our farm, and I officiated at her wedding. And by the way, I wrote a script to officiate. You want to get that right, that whole wedding thing, okay? But Kim wanted to have a certain wedding dress. It was her dream. And she went to New York, and she ordered it from this place. And they said they'd have it to her in a month. And six weeks passed, and eight weeks passed, and it didn't come, and finally it came. And she made calls, and she aggravated herself, and it came, and it was the wrong dress and the wrong size. That's not good. So she went back to New York. She went back again. She went back to New York. She went back again. She engaged in discussions with them, and finally she got an almost right dress. It was a nice wedding. But after the wedding, Kim said, you know, that was the most aggravating, hurtful thing. I, I just shouldn't have been put through that, and I paid all that money. And I want to tell them that they should do something about it. And I said, well, why don't you perfect your pitch? And she said, I know how to do that because I kept reading the galleys of your book. So I'll practice the three Ds. And she put all her thoughts down, and she said, this isn't going to be a pitch that I make orally. This will be a pitch I do in writing, in an email or a letter. And she gave me a draft, and I devil's advocated it. And then she practiced it again and perfected it a little bit more. And then she sent it. And I'll never forget the, the, the evening I got a call, and I think her words were, guess what? Scripting paid off. They gave her back half her money and gave her gigantic apologies. So it pays off, correct? Now. Let's think for two minutes, and we'll close, about other things that you may face in your lives, all of you in this room. Think about it. By the way, scripting paid off for Kim. Think about these things, a contract negotiation, dealing with a bully, offering tough but constructive criticism, rejecting a request for a loan, intervening with an addicted person, making a budget request, taking car keys away, communicating condolences, on and on the list goes. In fact, the book has, as I told you all before, 40 different life situations. It, it applies to all walks of life. And if you look at this list, don't you get a sense that when you face a challenge like this, you can take it to another level by taking this book, which you kids from Seed got, and following the principles. It's a simple, systematic approach. And in the final analysis, people say to me, hey, Ron, why do you do this? You were a sports agent. That's a, that's a fun profession. Why write books? And I tell them, well, first of all, it's fun to have people like John Harbaugh say, he thinks this stuff works, OK? And the Ravens will be better this year, I promise you, because he's, he's perfecting his pitch. But the reason why, the reason why I do this kind of stuff. The reason why I write books and stand here before you tonight 
is because I enjoy my role as a change agent, change agent, how to change your lives, how to be better, much more than that of a sports agent. Writing a book like this, reflecting with you, gives me the opportunity to draw on my experiences, the experiences of other people I've worked with. I get a chance to share and design a simple systematic approach like the three Ds that hopefully will empower other people who engage in, and review this and embrace it to meet communications challenges by making their points and delivering their messages more confidently and more successfully. And in the final analysis, I consider a book a success. If readers not only become better students, better business people, better professional people, better negotiators, better leaders, better family members, but also they find that they have a tool to lead more effective and more fulfilling lives. And that, my friends, is my wish for all of you. Thank you, Ron. All right. If you have a question for Ron, we'd ask that you come over here to the microphone. This is, program is uh, being taped for podcasting from the library's website, and we'd like to hear your question. So if you uh, have something you'd like to ask, please step up. Who, who has a question? And while we're waiting for, go ahead, young lady, you're close. You can just line up here with questions. I'll take any kinds of questions. Go ahead. Um, did you script for this lecture? Did you hear that question? That is truly the best question of all. Did I script for this presentation this evening? Can I tell you what I did? First, first I wrote out every word that I wanted to say here tonight, okay? It was about 20 pages. Then I took the 20 pages of thoughts and I put a, a highlighter of the key points I wanted to make. Then I deleted everything but the highlighted points. It was then three pages. And then I took the three pages and I took a copy of the slides and I wrote some bullet points down. So the answer is just like that young high school or the college guy who had to come back and make that presentation, I worked to perfect my pitch. And the people in my office who are here, wonderful people who make me look good, they had to listen to me. And they had the devil's advocate it. And they had to say, that doesn't sound real good, and that could be done better. And I perfected my pitch. Now, I didn't perfect it, but I pitched, OK? Good question. Yes, sir. Hello, Mr. Shapiro. Yes. Thank you for coming tonight. Can you briefly talk about when you started out in business and how long it took you to become profitable and some of the flaws and challenges that you faced? Well, I, I, if you, sir, if you want to come over and use the mic, you can just walk right across the front. Thank you. Um, I got it's a great question. Because that gives me a chance to talk about what I call the career opportunistic theory of life. Sir, when I started out in business, I started out with Larry Gibson over there in civil rights cases. That wasn't a very good business. That wasn't any place to make money. That was a place to change society. And I really wasn't thinking about making money. And so life was circumstantial. I, did, I always say to people, do the best job you can do where you are now and other opportunities will come. And it was amazing. I read about the lady who's now the president of General Motors. And she said she never asked for a raise. She never thought about the next job. She just thought about how good she could be in this job. And she rose through the ranks. 
and is now the president of GM. And so what happened to me was my law firm said, you make no money for us, so you be a securities lawyer too. So I started to do financial law, and I'm not going to get into that with you, and I started to be pretty good at that. And then because I did that and because I did civil rights law, and I won't explain it all now, I ended up having some baseball team, the Baltimore Orioles, call me and say, help Brooks Robinson, he's got a financial mess, and I was an expert. So you see how these windows of opportunity opened? Sir, I didn't think about when I want to be profitable or how I wanted to be profitable. I thought about what an unbelievable challenge I had presented to me and how much fun I was having. This is the truth. And I felt like maybe I should take a credit card out and give it to someone so they could charge me for the good times I was having. And then I started to make a living. And I made a living in spite of myself. Now, the greatest business people plan a little bit more than that. But I do think if you follow your passion and you do what you really love to do and you do it really well, it will fulfill you and it may also make you profitable as well. So I hope I didn't duck your question. Are you, are you back there somewhere? Are you okay? Okay, but that's the true story. So I'm not a good example, sir. Yeah, uh, Ron, thank you very much for your thoughtful presentation and useful. I feel very outnumbered by all the students here, but anyway. Um, my, so do I. <laughs> my question is, I, I could see the importance of scripting, but how do you maintain opportunity for spontaneity and give and take? Wonderful question. Wonderful question. And I also kind of just very quickly want, you probably don't remember, I interviewed you for a story about Christia Lou many years ago. Oh, wow. Yes. And you were yeah. very helpful and yeah. appreciated that very much. Well, that's a great question. I want to be clear, everybody. I am not declaring an end to spontaneity. I'm not declaring an end to, to extemporaneous speaking. I am just saying, sir, that when it's a crucial conversation, when you have a crucial point to make to someone, that's when I want you to script it out. When you feel like you know how to say it, but you're not confident, and you want to say it confidently, Think about intervention with an addicted person and, and look at all the research on it. And There's a right thing to say and a wrong thing to say or intervening with an elderly adult who has to give up the keys after driving for 70 years. You gotta say it the right way. Think about a bereaved person and you, know, and you go in and you say, oh, I, I understand, I've been through it. They don't wanna hear that. And so you, you learn in time that there's a right way to, and a wrong way to say things in those crucial situations. In everyday exchanges, it's going to be spontaneous, and I don't want to take that away. I'm just trying to raise the level of effectiveness when you it's, you got it you got it on the line, you got to deliver it right. Okay. Any other questions? You have a question, sir? Yes. Um, just like everybody else who came up here, say thank you. You know, I thank you too. Um, I thank you. Mm -hmm. Um. I just, can I get some tips for creative writing? Because I'm really big on that. That's, that's, all, that's all I really want. Okay. Some tips. Uh, again. <laughs> tips. <laughs> tips. First of all, you're, you're ahead of me, young man, because you're at KIPP, right? And you're already thinking about creative writing. I didn't even know how to do basic writing when I was in high school. I really was at a disadvantage. 
But I think the greatest tips on creative writing are to pick up books and read. Read books written, that's why this library exists. Read books written by other people. And you'll see styles and you'll see approaches and you'll get ideas and then you'll kind of hit your own level of creativity. So that's my greatest tip. Also, find a mentor. I believe in mentors. Find a tutor. Find someone who you respect and say, can I impose on you? Can I write something for you? I ask every intern who comes to our office to write a personal essay for me about who they are, what they want to do, what they, where they want to go in life. It's because I want to see what they can do, and I, if they want to go on with me, I want to continue to help them shape their creative writing. So read, find a mentor, and keep loving creative writing because it's going to give you unbelievable returns. Yeah, how you doing? We'll go uh, four more minutes, okay? Stop at eight. Uh, my question was, uh, what other interests did you have besides uh, writing when you was growing up? What other interests do I have besides yeah. writing? Uh, well, start with interest number one, my family. I have 11 grandchildren and seven children, and that's, that's, that's good. But, but, but we, you know, I, I took up an interest three years ago. I read a book. I said, you read books by a great writer, Daniel Pink, who said, use the right side of your brain. And he, in it, and, and I talked to Ryan over here. In fact, I want to introduce everyone to Ryan Wordlaw, okay? He's been in my office. He's from C School. He's teaching me a thing or two. But, but in that book, I learned a little bit about sketching. And he wasn't a sketching book. And it was about sketching portraits. And it said, sketch a self-portrait. And I could, any, anyone could make me look better than I really look. So I sketched myself. And then I started to sketch other people. My next sketch is Ryan and my granddaughter, Chloe, who's going to be 13 next month. But I've taken Ryan's picture, and he's in my office. And someday I'll send it to seed school, and you all can look at it, OK? <laughs> but I love to look at people's faces and try to recreate their faces in what I call a realistic rather than an impressionistic mode. So I, I just love that. And then I love traveling with my wife, Kathy, and meeting people all over the world and sharing things with her on our farm where we live. OK? Yes, sir. So my question is, um, in your process, have you ever experienced any major failures? And if, oh. and if so, which strategies do you suggest with coping with those? In my process, or in my life, in my professional career, have I ever experienced failures, significant failures? The answer is yes, and yes, and yes. And how do you cope with failures? Number one, you have got to learn to put failures behind you in the sense of saying, wow, why did I say that? And worrying, because you can't change what you've done. But the most important thing you can do with a failure is to take the mistake you make and say, what can I learn from it? And how can I use it to be better the next time? To be willing to look at someone who cares about you and say, where did I mess up? What could I have done better? And then 
draw from that mistake and build from that mistake. So yes, we're all going to make mistakes. You're all going to go through that. And hopefully you can grow from your mistakes and then teach others. I write books because I've learned things from my mistakes and I can teach others. Okay? Last question. I think they're much taller than me. Uh, good evening, Ryan, and good evening, everyone. Good evening. Thank you. Um, I believe it is not an accident to be to be in, being here tonight. And can I ask you a question? Yes. Could you be my mentor? <laughs> <laughs> what do you do? Um, right now, um, I, I'll be in um, Howard University this coming March 19. Yeah. <laughs> And I need your help for this because... But what um, are you going to study at uh, Howard University? Okay, uh, I was invited by the Council of this, uh, People with Disability Awareness. They want me to share my story about the missing toes. Oh. Uh, my story about the missing toes is about... Uh, that was 2007 when I was crossing the train tracks in BWR Airport on foot. I'm on my way to my work. In, in Baltimore and I know the train was coming and I know I have an ample time to cross but it was sad because I, I woke up in the ambulance I got dragged by the light rail for 20 feet yes I lost my foot my right foot because my foot went underneath the train and I, I pass out. I, thank God I'm unconscious because I don't know. <laughs> God, it's okay. Thank you. God is so good. I'm here. What? Okay. Do you realize I spoke for, what is your name? Mia. Mia. I spoke for an hour. Mia spoke for two minutes. And you heard more in the two minutes from Mia than you heard in an hour. Mia, here's my card, okay? Thank you. Thank you. you. Call me, okay? Oh, Let's give Ryan another um, big Baltimore round of applause.